four days ago now, we gathered in this room early on a Wednesday morning to observe Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of the season of Lent. Like I said earlier in the service, Lent is this 40-day season of preparation and reflection on the way of Jesus as we prepare to celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And if you do the math, you might notice that if you start counting from Ash Wednesday to Easter, it's actually not 40 days, it's 46 days. And, and that's because even during the season of Lent, we don't include Sunday. So if you listen carefully, what you ought to hear me and other people say is, it is the first Sunday in Lent, not the first Sunday of Lent. Um, even though this season is associated with focusing on events that led to Jesus' crucifixion on our behalf, we still recognize Sundays as resurrection days, even throughout the season of Lent. And the reason for that is because you have to appreciate that the very first followers of Jesus were all Jewish people. Jewish people who staunchly kept the Sabbath, which meant that they rested and worshiped from sundown on Fridays to sundown on Saturdays. And for them, Sunday was just another day of the week, no big deal. That is until the resurrection of Jesus, which occurred on a Sunday. And soon after that, the followers of Jesus, even those who were ethnically Jewish, began to celebrate and to worship on Sundays and to count Sunday as the first day of the week. So from that point on, Sunday is Resurrection Day. Now, since this is the first Sunday in Lent, I've decided to jump ahead in our sermon series. For those of you who have been following along, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Last Sunday, I preached um, out of Mark chapter 9. And you might notice in your bulletin that today, We jumped way ahead to chapter 14, and that's because for the next six Sundays, we're going to be marching with Jesus. We're going to be following him in the last days of his life as he um, goes to the cross and then uh, experiences the resurrection. You know, one author wrote that the Gospels, the Gospels are passion narratives with extended introductions. And it's true, all four Gospels tell us a different snapshot or give us the life of Jesus from a different angle. They have their own details and their own perspectives. Each of the four Gospels offers something that the others don't have, and yet all four of them agree on this, that the passion, that's that's another word for the suffering and the vindication of Jesus, that the passion is of unique importance, deserving most of their focus. Now, as I mentioned last week, Mark covers nearly three years of Jesus's life in 16 chapters. That's the book of Mark. Covers nearly three years of Jesus's life uh, in the first eight chapters of the book. So half the book of Mark is almost three years of Jesus's life. And here in chapter 14, we slow down. We slow down to the final couple of days of Jesus's life leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Mark has transitioned now from, you know, his earlier kinetic feeling, immediately Jesus does this, immediately Jesus does that, uh, to now it's like the tour bus has slowed way down and and we're observing the main attraction uh, really slowly. And Mark wants to make sure that we get all the details. So now we've gone from, you know, 40 miles an hour to just, we're there at the main better pray. Lord, as your servant Mark slows the pace of his storytelling, 
may we be extra attentive to you, both as you're portrayed in the story and as your living spirit speaks to us even now. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 14, 1 through 21. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth, to kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head, but some were indignantly remarking to one another saying, why has this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii or more and the money given to the poor. They were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Well, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray Jesus at an opportune time. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare uh, for you to eat Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came into the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to one another, it's not I, is it? It's not It's not me, is it? And he said to them, it's one of the 12 who dips with me in this bowl. For the son of man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be good for that man to have never been born. This whole chapter, this whole passage starts with some important information, some time markers for us, some context. The Passover celebration is just two days away, according to the story. And even though the religious leaders wanted to destroy Jesus, and they knew right where he was, um, because he was going around in public, um, they were concerned that if they arrested Jesus during this big public celebration of the Passover, that it might start a riot. You see, the Passover wasn't just a religious holiday, it was a very uh, political holiday as well. 
The Passover, of course, was the celebration uh, of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And on that night, uh, as the Israelites were in, were in Egypt, they were instructed to, to gather as families and neighbors and to sacrifice lambs, to both share in a meal together, but then also to smear the blood above their their, their door, so that when the angels of death came through and, and took the firstborn of the Egyptians, they would pass over the homes of the Israelites with the blood smeared on the door. They also were instructed to, uh, to not use yeast in their bread, but to use unleavened bread so they could make it faster, they could travel lighter, and be ready to go at a moment's notice when the time was right. And ever since that time, Jewish people have celebrated the Passover by gathering once a year, sharing a meal of unleavened bread and a, a young lamb or goat together. And in the first century, or I'm sorry, the sixth century BC, uh, King Josiah instituted a reform that made the Passover a pilgrimage event. And what I mean by that is before the sixth century BC, uh, the Passover could be eaten in your own home with your own neighbors, with your own extended family. And that's kind of how it went. There was no temple. Um, There was just a tabernacle from time to time, right? But in the 6th century BC, Josiah said, you know, everyone who can should come and eat the meal in the city limits of Jerusalem. And that was sort of the custom or the main way that people did it in the 1st century AD when this story takes place uh, in in which Jesus is is in there, right? So, Historians note that at the Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell with pilgrims packing the city streets, packing the squares. Um, and to add like, complexity to this whole scene, uh, Rome was the occupier of Israel. They were the oppressor. And so here you had probably 500 to 750,000 people crammed into a city that was normally inhabited by about 70,000 people. Um, On top of it, you had them celebrating God's deliverance from a political oppressor, right? Uh, That would be like if the British ever retook America, and then we all got together and celebrated the 4th of July, but there was a new rule that you had to celebrate the 4th of July in Washington, D.C. So we all traveled to Washington, D.C. Now it's got millions and millions more people than normal. We're all mad at the British and we're saying like, remember when when we were delivered from the British the first time? I mean, the tinder is all set. It wouldn't take much of a spark to get that political explosion going. That's sort of what it's like in this story where you've got all these people filling up Jerusalem, Roman soldiers walking around. In fact, in this is like a little off script, but in for this interesting stuff in 4 BC, some zealot Jewish people stoned to death a little cohort of, of Roman soldiers. They cornered him in an alley, stoned about a dozen of them to death. And the Romans came back and killed 3,000 Jewish people. So this is a real day. 4 BC is not too, too far before this scene. And so just 30 years later, this is fresh in people's living memory. The Pharisees are rightfully concerned that they don't want to take Jesus down in public because the crowd is um, thinking he might be somebody special. So, Pharisees' plan, take Jesus by stealth, wait till the Passover is over, crowds dissipate, it'll be much safer, less volatile. Meanwhile, Jesus and his disciples are doing what many pilgrims did, 
because you couldn't possibly find room to stay in Jerusalem. They they stayed in a little town outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus and his friends stayed in Bethany. There's lots of little towns outside Jerusalem. And Bethany's within less than a day's walk. So they could stay in Bethany and they could come into town for all the festivities and then they would go home to sleep in Bethany. And that's kind of how you did it. Um, And while they're in Bethany staying out there, um, Mark tells us that that he's staying at this guy's house called Simon the Leper. We have no idea who Simon the Leper is. Lots of people had nicknames in the the ancient world. Um, Well, a lot of us have nicknames too. There's a lot of Simons. I mean, Simon was a super common name. So either this guy was Simon the guy with the skin condition, probably not real leprosy. It was probably more like... um, eczema or psoriasis or something like that, or he was a man who had been healed by Jesus of leprosy, which was what happened for a lot of people, and, um, and, and Jesus is just at his house. So now it's known as Simon the leper, and he, he's there, and, and, and this woman comes in. And Mark doesn't give us a name for this woman. Um, she comes in, she's got a vial of, of expensive perfume, um, And we know that the cost of this perfume, the value is over 300 denarii. That's that's a year's worth of wages for for a common person. That's that's a lot of money. Now, some interesting details. The woman comes in unaccompanied by a man. That was very uncommon. We don't hear anything about her husband. We don't hear anything about her older brother. That would have been the way you traveled as an unaccompanied woman in the first century Palestine area. She comes in unaccompanied. This is sort of scandalous. Um, And what that probably implies is that she's unmarried. And so she's either a widow or she's just never been married. Um, And she's unaccompanied, right? And so likely what the reason she has this perfume that's so expensive uh, isn't because she's a wealthy person. It's because that was her um, inheritance her future dowry or bride price. And um, it's a big deal. It's in a world with no social net, um, in a world where an unaccompanied woman couldn't just go get a job at the local store or, um, or have any kind of like reputable way of making income, this was her safety net. No social security, no Medicare, uh, no welfare, right? Uh, and, and, what does she do with this perfume? Um, she decides to, to break the bottle open and to put it on Jesus' head. Um, alabaster vials have usually a long neck. And perfumes in that time period were oil-based. Not Like our perfumes and colognes are alcohol-based, and if you spill a bottle of cologne and the top's off, it just goes all over the place and evaporates really quickly. But in those days, they're oil-based, and they're very thick, viscous, right? And, and so um, these long necks of, of an alabaster vial, you would take the cork or the stopper out, and you could pour it, and it would, it would pour really slowly, like a drip. And that's actually a good thing, because it's super potent, and it's super expensive. So you don't want, you don't want it just pouring out. Now, what there's kind of a, an old myth. I don't know if you've heard this one. I always, in church, they always told us, like, you had to break it open and you can only use it once. But like, and I was like, even as a kid, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like, alabaster's a stone. How do they get the perfume in there if, if you could, you know? So, it's, yeah, no archaeologists have ever found an alabaster vial with stuff in it that you, doesn't have a stopper. So the point is, the point is, 
that this woman could have easily anointed Jesus with a little bit of the perfume. It's potent stuff. Three drops would have been more than enough to fill the house with fragrance. But what she does is breaks it open. And what that does is it, it, it means she can never use it again. That she's just going all in on this anointing uh, of Jesus. She's extravagantly anointing him. She's going over the top. Uh, and the second thing is that she's, you know, she's giving it all to him. She isn't holding back at all, pouring out her perfume, and in reality, pouring out her financial security, her wealth, and her trust. If I could sum up what's going on in this scene, I would do it like this. This woman has just taken out her retirement fund and spent it on something completely impractical for Jesus. She's literally poured out the contents of her heart to the object of her devotion and has spared no expense. And the disciples were offended. They were offended. They they rebuked the woman. And the interesting word for this, nerd out for a minute, um, the word for rebuke in the sentence in Greek is, is an onomatopoeia, right? It's like, it's how horses snort. So it says like they rebuked her. It was more like they, what? You know, it's like, it's this, it's like this, the sound that they make. And there wasn't a great way to translate that into English, but they snort at her like a wild horse. They're just so taken up. Why this waste, they said. And the word for waste is destruction. Why this annihilation? Why this destruction? These are strong words, right? Um, This perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And you know, they sort of have a point. Like most of us, looking out, most of us are 21st century Western American people. And we're sort of, it's just in our culture to like, have a pragmatic view of money. And especially in Christian culture, like we're told, be good stewards of your money and your resources. And sometimes that's code for be sort of skeptical and stingy with your money. And above all, we have an aversion, I think, to looking foolish, to appearing out of control. We live in an age of skepticism and cynicism and a fear of being taken in, a bit like the dwarves in the last battle, for those who have ears to hear, look in here. And, and I think what this has done to us, it's just in the air we breathe. I'm not calling anybody out, but I resonate with that. I, I'm a little bit like reserved. Um, I don't want to look stupid and taken in. There's, a, there's enough scams out there, unfortunately, that's kind of put our defenses up a little bit. And, and I think what, what this does to us is it, it's turned our culture into one of, uh, of one that's like just saying like, my money is for my personal consumption and calculated risk and selfishness. Like that's what it's mainly for, is for me. To stewardship really means control of my things. And oftentimes the biggest critics of how other people spend their money, whether it's critics of how the government spends their money or how the church spends its money or how corporations spend their money or how our neighbors or our relatives spend their money, the biggest critics are people who are quite at home spending their money however they want on themselves with little thought for others. 
And it just strikes me that my opinion on how other people spend their money and your opinion, I'll just say our collective opinion, um, our, our opinions are poor judges um, in the case of the behaviors of other people. God alone has the wisdom and perspective and authority to judge people's hearts. So let's see maybe what he has to say about this scene. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this woman's apparent foolishness uh, in the use of her resources. Here's what he says. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good deed to me. And that word kalos means beautiful. She's done something beautiful for me. Jesus said, They would always have the poor among them, but they wouldn't always have him, at least in that form, among them. And Jesus isn't saying that pouring out money on devotion to him is better than helping the poor. You know, there's a common rabbinic uh, teaching trope or, or style or technique where a rabbi would give the first line in a Bible passage and it's like a shorthand. And and, and so rather than saying like the whole passage, the rabbi would give the first line and it's implied that you, it means the whole passage, right? And so um, that that line about you will always have the poor with you, it's literally a quote from Deuteronomy 15.11. And here's the whole passage. For the poor will never cease to be out of the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in the land. Context, context, context. Jesus is not saying the poor aren't important or that devotion to him should get your money before the poor. He's saying they're always there and you should always be ready to help them. But something special is happening here in this moment. And for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, this woman is doing two things quite brilliantly. She's doing more than she actually understands. She knows on the one hand, she's anointing his head. That's what you do for a king. That's what you do for a Messiah is actually... Messiah, which is translated Christ in Greek, that means literally anointed one. And so this woman is anointing the head of the one she's choosing to follow. That's what she thinks she's doing, and she is doing that. But the other thing, and what Jesus interprets this as, she's also anointing his body for burial. And they still don't get it yet. He's been telling them he's going to be handed over and, and, and killed, but they just, they don't believe it yet. And, and, and Jesus is saying, yeah, that's, that's what she's doing. And literally in less than a couple days, he's going to be dead. This woman in the story, she's not foolish with her finances. She's faithful. I think she is intentionally unnamed in Mark's gospel. I think Mark knows her name. The other gospel writers know her name, and Mark knows the apostles. So I think he knows her name. Mark's an evangelist. And he's trying to communicate a deeper thing here. And so he leaves her name ambiguous. And I think why is that this woman as a character in the story is a mirror to me and is a mirror to you. Are we extravagant in our love for Jesus and care for others? Or would we describe ourselves around money as calculated, reserved, even stingy? I'm convicted by that. Our scripture reading this evening comes from 2 Samuel 6. It recalls this time that David has found the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it had been captured and then lost and just like out there in these strange places. And David finds it. He's so excited. He brings it back into the holy city. And he's dancing like 
unencumbered, right? And, 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 and his wife sees him and she scornfully berates him. You know, she doesn't think that what he's doing, the way he's behaving is dignified for a king. Um, it's not kingly by the estimates of the world. You know, and I think there's always going to be those people out there who, who want to minimize our enthusiasm, whether it's how we worship or how we talk or how we spend our resources on other people who can't pay us back. And what makes something worship and, and another thing wasteful? Like, how do we know the difference between what's worship and what's wasteful? What makes an act or an attitude faithful and what makes it foolish? And I, and I think in, there, in the answer there, it's got to be, got to weigh the heart and the motive. Is this done out of love for Jesus and my neighbor, or is this done out of self-preservation or just selfishness? It's no accident that Mark has sandwiched this story of the woman who appears foolish between two stories of men who appear crafty and savvy and strategic and wise. The religious leaders think that they're being wise by waiting until the Passover. And Judas thinks that he's being crafty by offering to hand Jesus over secretly. See, he can betray Jesus to the religious leaders during the Passover because he has insider knowledge of where Jesus will be, when Jesus will be isolated and away from the crowd. So Judas thinks he's pretty special. He can do this. Unlike the unnamed, unaccompanied woman, these men think they have power and control over their destinies and over the destinies of other people. And it's easy to look down on them as villains. But I bet if you and I were honest, most of us, wouldn't we rather be the ones in power? Wouldn't we rather be seen as wise and strategic? The last thing that most of us would want to be known as or seen as is foolish or naive. It appears that Jesus is foolish and naive. You know, in the ancient world, even more than today, the biggest insult that one could heap upon a leader or a teacher would be betrayal by a student or a follower. And here Jesus is looking foolish. We know that Judas is going to betray him, and yet Jesus still hosts him at his own meal. John uh, tells, tells us that Jesus washed these disciples' feet, including Judas. We know that, that Ju Jesus shares table fellowship with Judas. And remember, it's not only Judas who will deny Jesus. The other disciples end up abandoning him too before the night's done. Uh, and so it seems that like Jesus is being taken in. It seems like that Jesus is being duped and scammed. Is Jesus foolish in this story? In the world's eyes, and by maybe our standards, yeah, he is. But what Mark is saying through his storytelling is that Jesus is not foolish. He's actually faithful. And let me show you how. I've already pointed out how the religious leaders and how Judas appear to be strategic and savvy. How they want to destroy Jesus after the Passover. But you know what? His death is rooted in the symbology of the Passover, the sacrificial death of the Passover. And so God works through the corruption of Judas to reveal the inside location um, and the movements of Jesus and his disciples, thus enabling them to work with stealth 
and discretion right into God's plan. The leaders plot a time to their liking after the Passover, but God changes that time to during the Passover. When when Jesus' death would be full of meaning, Jesus will die as the last sacrifice, the sacrifice that that covers every person for all time, including the creation. See, Judas plans to hand Jesus over, but God uses this plan to get Jesus where he needs to be when he needs to be there. The disciples, they're like all worried. Jesus, do you have a plan for the Passover? Jesus, what can we do to prepare for the Passover? Uh, But Jesus already has a plan, like seemingly in the works for some time because it plays out like a spy movie or something like, okay, I want you to go to town. There's this dude carrying a water jug. Follow that guy. And whatever house he goes into, then just say to the owner, like, hey, where's the place that the teacher, and it's already like furnished. It's already there. Jesus is in complete control of this situation. The 12, they're with Jesus at the meal. They think they're participating in a religious meal, participating in the Passover Seder or something very much like it. Um, Jesus changes the whole script. All of a sudden, with his betrayers present, he declares that he is the focus of, uh, of this new Passover meal, this communion meal. And notice that in this story, there's no sacrificial animal. I mean, that's just a staple of the Passover meal the lamb or the goat. There's no animal at this meal. It's bread and wine. Why is that? Because of course, Jesus is the sacrificial animal. He's the sacrifice. His body and blood will wash everyone clean who places their faith in him. Jesus isn't foolish for trusting God's plan. He's faithful. The other gospel writers named Judas as the one who dips with Jesus in the bowl. Mark doesn't name him. In Mark's version, it's left ambiguous as to who dips in the bowl with Jesus. The one who will betray me will dip with me in the bowl. And we don't never find out from Mark who that person is. And again, I think it's left a mystery for the moment. A moment long enough to include you and me in the story. As we prepare now to come to the table that Jesus hosts, Let's take a moment to lay down our pride, even if it appears and feels weak and foolish, to confess our great need to Jesus, our need for his forgiveness, and our need for his life-giving spirit. Let's take a moment.
you not only became incarnate as a human, but you became one who was lowly and even seen maybe on the surface as a fool, as naive, as willing to be taken advantage of for our sake. We see you, Jesus. We see you in the story, understanding now from this side of the cross that you are in control, sovereign. That is your plan all along to give yourself. That makes me admire you even more. Thank you for giving yourself for me and for us. Lord, help us to receive the forgiveness you died for. Help us to receive and to live into the life you rose for and offer us now. Amen.